may be seated. But I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 10 and looking at verses 1 through 13. Last week we, uh, we talked about uh, the importance of hospitality uh, in bringing people to uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and building up the church. Uh, in the daily functions of the church, um, hospitality is of critical importance and always has been. Uh, in uh, the apostolic church, they were often in one another's houses, breaking bread, uh, praying for one another, taking care of one another. But one of the other things, obviously, that is vitally important within the church of Jesus Christ is wisdom. We need to be people of whom it may be said wisdom is to be found in their midst, and not because they are so smart, but because the Lord has been active amongst them, teaching them his word, and then causing them to go out and share it with others. Uh, we're going to see here the story of a Gentile who came all the way to Israel, traveled 1,500 miles from southern Yemen in order to speak to Solomon and to ask him the hard questions. And we'll see what she found when she arrived there. But we need to remember that this is something that goes on again and again in the world, regardless of whether we see it. People seek wisdom. They look for truth. Uh, the Lord plants in their heart that desire for true truth, uh, as Francis Schaeffer used to put it. And let us hope that uh, when they are looking for true truth, we're able to provide it from, uh, for them from the only true source, and that is the word of the Lord. But uh, let's go now and seek his face and ask for his help. God, our Father, as we come to your word, we understand, Lord, that without your light dwelling within us, illuminating us inwardly, we will never understand it. It will remain darkened. We may understand the words, we may hear them, but, Lord, they won't be intelligible to us, not truly. And we certainly will never put them into application in our lives. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us this day to understand and to grow in our knowledge of the word. But not merely to grow, uh, not to do anything with it, but then to take what we have learned and to share it with others. May you make us attentive. We know that in the next few moments, uh, we know that our great enemies are going to be struggling to make sure that this is a, a profitless exercise. That we simply sit here and we think about all sorts of other things. We wander about, we dawdle, we, our minds go to and fro, and we think about everything but the word. I pray you wouldn't let that happen. Help us to be fixed on your word. Help us to get, even if it's only a few crumbs, nourishment from it. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. First Kings chapter 10 and verses 1 through 13. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Then she said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told me. 
Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy are your men and happy are these your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great quantity, and precious stones. Then never again came such abundance of spices as the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Also, the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought great quantities of almug wood and precious stones from Ophir. And the king made steps of the almug wood for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also harps and stringed instruments for singers. Then ever again came so much almug wood, nor has, there been the, has the like been seen to this day. Now King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked, besides what Solomon had given her according to the royal generosity. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Evangelism is obviously something that all Christians are called to. We have the Great Commission. Before Jesus ascended, he set the uh, church upon the great task of carrying the gospel to all the nations, making disciples of them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all the things that he commanded. And so that's something that we're supposed to be daily engaged in. And many people have come up with different ways of carrying out uh, evangelism, all these canned presentations and so on. Some of them are very good. But one of the things that I, I tend to find that uh, it's a mistake that people make when they're thinking about evangelism and who they should approach, they tend to think that the argumentative skeptic who is demanding evidence and asking hard questions is a person to be avoided. This is somebody who we should not be bringing the gospel to because we're just going to get entirely bogged down with all of their questions. I think it's much easier, for instance, to evangelize people who are nice and who are unargumentative and who won't uh, debate with you or ask challenging questions and they won't take up much of your time. But I find after 20 years, that hasn't been my experience at all when it comes to evangelizing. The nice person who doesn't argue usually doesn't really care about the gospel. They're not arguing because it's not important. What do we argue about? We argue about the things that are important to us unless we're just argumentative by nature, in which case avoid that person. But the person who is arguing because something doesn't feel right or they want more information. That is actually something that we need to be taking advantage of. Whereas the person who doesn't really care about the gospel, who thinks it's nice that you have your, you know, your faith thing and they listen to you for a little while because they're polite but are never really engaged, well, with them it's, it's, you know, it's like nailing jello to the wall. It's it's something impossible because they just, you know, they kind of, and they absorb whatever it is that you're throwing at them, and it doesn't change them at all. It just bounces off. The serious skeptic, and when I say serious skeptic, I don't mean the internet troll, uh, but rather the person who is honestly interested but has serious <coughs> doubts, 
I tend to find that they're actually the most fruitful field when it comes to evangelism. Often it's the case. You remember how Paul, as he was going up to Damascus and the Lord appeared to him and knocked him uh, on his posterior. And one of the things that the Lord said to him is it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul had been deliberately resisting the Lord's working in him and in his heart. His, his conscience was deeply troubled. And often you will find that the skeptic is angry precisely because his conscience is disturbed. He feels the emptiness in him. He feels that God-shaped hole that we're all born with. He knows it's empty and there is nothing to fill it, nothing sufficient in this universe. No matter what I throw into that gap, nothing brings contentment. There are people, therefore, who, although they are difficult to evangelize because they do present difficult questions and so on, often they will be not just people who are changed by the Lord, but people who are then used by the Lord. Uh, We don't tend to like stubbornness in our kids, but often the stubborn child goes on to be the greatest defender of the faith, whereas the child who is willing to compromise wherever they are, well, they, they don't resist much when it comes to uh, push, uh, when push comes to shove. Uh, as an instance of, of the kind of skeptic who eventually becomes a great asset within the kingdom, I mean, I could go back to uh, you know, ancient times and talk about uh, people like uh, Augustine, uh, whose confessions are being read at, uh, at Rhoda's house. But instead, I'd, I'd like to give you a modern example. Uh, some of you may have heard the name Lee Strobel. I know most of the older kids will have heard that name. Uh, Deacon uh, Dave Mullen was taking uh, them through Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, which came out in 2016. Who was Lee Strobel? Well, Lee Strobel, if you're not familiar with him, was the legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. He'd been an investigative reporter specializing in crime stories all his uh, career. And in 1979, he had a life-changing experience, a profoundly life-changing experience. What happened? His wife came to him, his agnostic wife, and he was an ardent atheist, had no interest in God or religion, did not believe this thing. But his, his wife came to Lee, told him she'd been going to church and that she had become a follower of Christ. His wife was now a Christian. And Strobel was incredibly alarmed. And he was certain that this would would spell the end of his marriage. But he did not want to give up on his poor, deluded wife. So what he did was he said he was going to persuade her to leave the cult that she had joined. So for almost two years, he put his skills as an investigative reporter to work examining the claims of the Christian faith. And the amazing thing was that at the end of that time, Strobel concluded, he wrote, that it would take more faith to remain an atheist than to believe in Christ. His training, intellect, and research, along with the transformation of his wife, led him to make the following statement. He wrote, to be an atheist, I would have had to swim upstream against this torrent of evidence pointing towards the truth of Jesus Christ. And I couldn't do that. I was trained in journalism and law to respond to truth. Now, we know that had the Lord not been working in Strobel's heart, he would never come to that conclusion. I have seen men and women and children resist the gospel message uh, almost insanely uh, when it's set before them uh, as something that would do them good, 
And clearly they can see the way that it has done good in the lives of others, and yet they resist because they are angry with God. They are enemies and rebels, and they are absolutely resistant. Lee Strobel's resistance was broken down, therefore, not just by arguments, not just by evidence, but obviously by the work of the Spirit in his heart. But he asked those questions, and people gave him the answers that the Lord intended him to have. Now, the Queen of Sheba, who we read about in this section of Kings, was clearly also not a pushover when it came to believing in the God of Israel. She was not raised in a, in a uh, covenant family. She had obviously not heard uh, the gospel message, but she had heard many reports. Uh, as you know from chapter 9, Solomon had established trade routes throughout the Middle East, and that would have included the kingdom of Sheba. It's possible that Ophir, which was referenced actually in the section we read, was located in that vicinity. Uh, Sheba was almost certainly Saba, a kingdom in, and we're not referring to uh, the delicious kind of sushi called Saba, but rather a nation uh, called Saba. The Sabaeans came from Saba. It's a kingdom in South Arabia, roughly where Yemen is today, so at the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula. And merchants had obviously been trading with Israel. They had been to Jerusalem, and they reported that there was a king in Israel who was wiser than all the other kings on earth. And you have to see his city. It is, it is magnificent. Uh, so she was told about all of these things. And clearly, wisdom was something that she was seeking. And that is a wonderful thing. Far too many people are seeking only sensual pleasures. They want their senses to be tickled. They want to be entertained. We have gotten to the point where we are entertaining ourselves to death. I sometimes think that in, in terms of the dystopias that we are choosing, uh, in the East, in places like China, we're seeing more 1984, but here in the West, it's Brave New World. It's all entertainment, 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 which keeps us from learning anything. What we need so desperately is true wisdom. We need a knowledge that's greater than simply a, a, a Google search. We'll talk more about what wisdom is in just a moment. But she was seeking wisdom. And so she decided she was going to put this king to the test. Was he really wise? Or was it all so much fluff? So what does she do? She gathers together her retinue. And she loads down her camel train. And it would have been a very large group in order to travel safely all the way up the Arabian Peninsula. And to protect the caravan, she would have needed virtually a small army. But they make the 1,500-mile journey all the way to Jerusalem. And when she got there, she met Solomon. And note this. This is very important. She didn't waste time. She didn't waste time with, with idle small talk. And she also, she wasn't evasive in their conversations. We learn in the word that she spoke everything that was on her heart. She said, I need to know these things. These things that are the most important things in the world. Do you know, it, it's been my experience that people are very capable of living entirely frivolous lives. Until something reminds them of their mortality. I, it, it, I, I know it shocks people, but um, uh, sometimes a, a, the coffin at a funeral is the best sermon illustration you could ever ask for. Because anybody who has any, any sort of intelligence whatsoever has to figure that as that person in the coffin is at that moment in time so shall we all be someday. 
And so what will all of our frivolity, what will all of our swiping up, down, left, and right, and so on, do for us on that day? We may have watched every single TikTok video and be completely based ourselves, but what good will that be when it comes time to die? I dare say not at all. And she knew that although she was the queen of Sheba, she had an exalted position, a monarch with probably autocratic power in this particular nation, yet she had something that she didn't have, and that was clearly contentment, assurance, wisdom. What will happen to me after I die? 50 years, maybe, 60 She would live on this earth, but then the day would come when her heart would stop beating and she would die. She had undoubtedly seen it already. What would happen to her? That's the great question. What comes next? Viewed against eternity, our lives are actually the smallest portion of our existence. That is our mortal lives here on earth. What comes next? So she spoke everything that was on her heart. She asked the hard questions And Solomon was not evasive. He didn't make excuses either. He answered her questions. We learn that nothing was too hard for the author of most of the book of Proverbs. There's uh, an epic poem by Robert Browning. It's actually not not epic in terms of book length. It's rather short. Um, But uh, it's called Solomon and Balkis. And it's a reimagining of the conversation that took place between them. Browning writes... She proves him with hard questions. Before she has reached the middle, he smiling supplies the end. Straight solves them riddle by riddle. Until dead beaten at last, there is left no spirit in her. And thus she would close the game whereof she was first bargainer. What is it, though, that she was seeking? She's seeking wisdom. What is wisdom? And that's something that I think people don't consider very often these days. These days were taken up with discussions of facts. We're given over to discussions of data and information. Everything is information, information. We do Google searches in order to find information and to hopefully glean a fact or two here and there. But that isn't wisdom. Merely having data or information at hand, even true information, isn't wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to see the world as it is through the perspective of God's truth, and then to apply that truth to life, to whatever is happening in your life, to assess things correctly, to know them as they are. Calvin once said that the key to life is to know God and to know ourselves. And the sad thing is so few people know either. How can you not know yourself? Do you know how few people actually know themselves as they really are? How many people walk around and their primary delusions are self-delusions? They, they, they aren't able to assess themselves correctly. J.I. Packer, in his Knowing God, which I, I can't recommend highly enough, in his chapter on wisdom, I believe it's chapter 10, describes it this way. He says this, What does it mean for God to give us wisdom? What kind of gift is it? It's like being taught to drive. What matters in driving is the speed and appropriateness of your reactions to things and the soundness of your judgment as to what scope scope a situation gives you. 
You do not ask yourself why the road should narrow or screw itself into a dogleg wiggle just where it does, nor why that van should be parked where it is, nor why the driver in front should hug the crown of the road so lovingly. You simply try to see and do the right thing in the actual situation that presents itself. The effect of divine wisdom is to enable you and me to do just that in the actual situations of everyday life. To drive well, you have to keep your eyes skinned to notice exactly what is in front of you. To live wisely, you have to be clear-sighted and realistic, ruthlessly so, in looking at life as it is. Wisdom will not go with comforting illusions, false sentiment, or the use of rose-colored glasses. Most of us live in a dream world with our heads in the clouds and our feet off the ground. We never see the world and our lives in it as they really are. The deep-seated, sin-bred unrealism is one reason why there is so little wisdom among us even the soundest and most orthodox of us. Now, if we consider that, and we consider how little wisdom there is, it shouldn't surprise us that people have actually gotten to the point where they believe that their delusions are reality. That simply by pretending, I I mean, if we had told the Founding Fathers, you know, someday people will be honestly asking people to refer to them as frog self, because they honestly believe that because they feel frog, they are frog. They would look at you and say, that's insane. And it is. But what is it? It's just years and years and years of being denuded of wisdom, of living in unreality until your life becomes a hopeless muddle. And who would want that to happen? Well, of course, your three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They don't want you to hear any truth and certainly not to apply it. They want you to be dead to the world as it truly is to sleep through sermons, to to constantly be uh, absolutely unaware of anything that's going on, as it really is going on. The only only time that they want you to be uh, aware of anything is when it's a lie, and then they want you to absorb it and believe it. Well, she came looking for true wisdom that might be applied to life, and that is why the perspective of someone truly wise and um, truly wise and experienced is so valuable to us. I pray that there are wise people in your life. Now, generally speaking, I have to tell you, wisdom is not something that comes with youth. But as well, we all know uh, the saying: "There's no fool like an old fool." It is possible to have gone through most of the years of your life and to have failed to absorb any true wisdom, unfortunately. But when you find somebody who has that wonderful combination of godliness, wisdom, and experience, and is able to impart that to you, that is a person that you need in your life. Seek to find godly mentors. I mean, one thing to notice here is that this woman was willing to travel 1,500 miles in the most difficult of circumstances, on a camel through the desert in order to find godly wisdom. So how important should it be for us to find wisdom as well? Generally speaking, most of us don't have to travel 1,500 miles on a camel in order to find somebody who can give us good, godly advice and tell us the truth about the world. Now, notice also that the Queen of Sheba, she wasn't just impressed with the wisdom that God had given to Solomon. She was impressed with what that wisdom had built. And you see, that's vitally important. If someone claims to be wise, and when people are claiming to be wise, we need to be, like she was, assessing that claim rather than simply believing it implicitly. 
uh, giving them papal powers so that th if they declare something to be true, well, automatically it is true. No, we need to be Berean. We need to be searching and seeking to find out if these things are true. Of course, we need to be comparing everything to the wisdom of God. But when somebody says that they're wise, is there evidence of that in their life? Many people will say that they are wise, but when you look at, at their lives, you don't see much wisdom. For instance, if someone claims to be a, a wise marriage counselor, but that person is on their third marriage, you have reason to doubt that particular statement and that their wisdom will do anything good for you. Now, I mentioned this, but I've actually spoken to people in counseling and I've gotten, well, so-and-so says, my friend says, and then they'll say something. And I'll say, who is this person? Well, she's so-and-so-and-so. Uh, okay, tell me about her. Well, she's divorced and... Uh, like you're taking your marriage counseling from somebody who is on their second divorce? I've actually, you know, had that conversation. Wouldn't it be better actually to get information about how to be divorced from them? Because that's what's going on in their life. I just use that as one example, but there are many people who claim to be wise and good at various things. We have people who claim to be economics whizzes who are driving their companies and their, their nations into the ground. Clearly, they are not what they appear to be. So when somebody says that they are wise, there should be evidence of wisdom in their life. And certainly, she, looking at Solomon, saw that there was great wisdom in his uh, life and evidence of that. She was impressed, I note, by his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord. Um, I don't know whether it was the finery of the entryway, you know, whether it was tiled or you know, marble or there were good, the gold shields and so on, or the fact, and I, I suspect this is more the case, that, that it was a private entryway that Solomon had made because he, the worship of the temple was so important to him that he wanted to be able to go there whenever he needed to, that he had his own private way of reaching the temple. And that struck her as wisdom, that the, 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 the king of Israel had made it possible for himself to go and to worship whenever he needed to. And we read that it all takes her breath away. It leaves her literally breathless. She gushes in verse 6. It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. Now, she had come to Solomon doubting, but she had come with an open mind. And she had tested Solomon, and she had found him to be truly wise. And as a result, she gives him the gifts that she had brought with her. Uh, it's not like he won them, but uh, at that point in time, she's, she's able to, to express her thanks by uh, giving him what she has after he has given her something. And we need to note this, that is actually more precious than those gifts themselves. That's the funny thing. The world would have looked at the spices and the gold and all of those things and said, wow, that's truly valuable. What did she get in return? She just had a conversation with the king. But she got more than that. She got biblical wisdom. And it is very possible by the way that she speaks, the way that she blesses God, that her heart was truly changed. That in speaking with the king, she became a believer, not only in biblical wisdom, but in the source of that biblical wisdom. 
If her eyes were truly open to see it, it means that the Lord worked in her heart. Note who she gives glory to in verse 9. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord has loved Israel forever, therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. She even... She even confesses the providence of God, his sovereignty. He's the one who put you on the king. He's the uh, king, put you on the throne. He's the one who made you king. He's the one who gave you all of these things. And so she is deeply impressed. Now, I need to deal uh, just briefly with a historical issue because it's something that uh, people often uh, come in mind to this, the, uh, within their minds when they come to this section. It's a little on the embarrassing side. When I went and I, um, I taught on... Uh, the, the subject of um, First Kings when I was teaching through the historical books in Uganda, I asked, uh, <laughs> I asked my class, what do you know about King Solomon? And they, they start going through things. And then one woman says, and he slept with the, uh, the, uh, the Queen of Sheba. And they had a child. And I, I'm like, okay. Uh, wh- where did you find that in the Bible? <laughs> it's not there. Uh, but it is something that is bandied about. Uh, interpreters have sometimes looked at verse 13 and said, uh, which says, Now King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked, besides what Solomon had given her according to the royal generosity. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. It's often interpreted as meaning she desired a son from him and that she left pregnant. There is even a Jewish tradition that uh, their union produced uh, the, uh, the first of the Neo-Babylonian kings, Nebuchadrezzar, uh, and there is an Ethiopian tradition that their son was Merilik, uh, the founder of the Ethiopic dynasty. And so that was how Judaism got to Ethiopia uh, through uh, him. I, I have to tell you, the Bible doesn't support this. And given that historically there are records of the actual uh, fathers of these two particular kings, it is extraordinarily unlikely that that was the case. I, I don't believe it was. Uh, I, I don't believe it happened. But... Um, in any event, we, we need to remember that just because there's rumor and myth, that doesn't make, it, uh, doesn't make it true. So moving on, I do want to give you a few applications. First, I, I want you to see that we have here an answer. And this is very important. We talked about evangelism. One of the most important parts of evangelism is actually what happens before evangelism. What should we be doing before we evangelize people? Praying. Thank you. Now, you remember that when he had dedicated the temple... Solomon had prayed. And if you go back two chapters to 1 Kings 8 and then look at verse 41 with me. And he says, Moreover, concerning a foreigner, this is Solomon's prayer, who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays towards this temple. Here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. That all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. Do you see how the Lord had answered his prayer? Now, this is just a great evidence of it, but there were undoubtedly other times when foreigners had come who were less exalted than the Queen of Sheba and had seen the way that God had blessed Israel, the way that God had given them a king, the way that God had given them this, this wonderful temple. They saw the truth and the wisdom, and therefore they were converted. So the first thing that we need to remember is the importance of prayer in evangelism, not just evangelizing, but rather seeking the Lord's face and asking him to bless it. Second application. This story of the Queen of Sheba actually comes up in the New Testament, 
and it's our Lord who shares it. Uh, in the New Testament, Christ uses the Queen of Sheba as an example to his own people. If you'll turn with me in the Bible to Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, I want to read that particular section. And this is one of those hard examples that Jesus makes. Going to 1242. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. What's going on in those verses? Well, you remember the, the, uh, that Jesus <clears throat> had come and he was preaching the gospel and he was doing great miracles. And the Pharisees kept coming to him and saying, show us a sign, show us a sign, and so on. When the Messiah was doing in front of them all of the things that the prophets had said the Messiah would do. And he said, do you realize that this Gentile woman came 1,500 miles to hear wisdom from Solomon? And now Solomon, his, one of <clears throat> the people in the line of Judah, is now amongst you, a king greater than Solomon, wiser than Solomon, because he's not merely a man like Solomon was, but rather very God of very God is now before you preaching the gospel, and you will not hear me. You remain entrenched in your own presuppositions. You will not hear wisdom. Your hearts are hard and stony. He came to his own people, and his people would not receive him. But what about you? Jesus was in front of his own people, and they would not listen to his claims. They would not assess the evidence they would not inquire truly and ask when the, when the prophet or when the Messiah comes, rather, will he do more than this man is already doing here? They did not put his miracles to an honest test. And when they could not deny that he had done these miraculous things, then they said, oh, it's the power of the devil. But what about the people who have access this day to the word of God? to the wisdom of God, to the preaching of the gospel, and yet refuse to listen to it. Turn with me, if you would, to your Sabbath meditation. Note this. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the king of all kings. This is in your folder in the middle. Ergo, Revelation 19.16. Will you come and see for yourself that what he says is really true? The queen of Sheba traveled a thousand miles to find out if Solomon was everything that people said he was. <laughs> What are you willing to do to find out the truth about Jesus? If anything, the reports about him are even more remarkable. It is said that he is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. According to the good news of the gospel, Jesus died on the cross to pay for the sins of everyone who believes in him and rose from the dead to give eternal life. If this is true, it is the most important thing that has ever happened. If we are not sure whether it is true or not, we should at least be curious enough to find out. Whether or not Jesus Christ is the Savior is the most important question with which you have to do. Because if he is, and he is, and you are outside of him, you are in a dreadful, perilous condition. You need to know whether or not salvation is available through this man, or whether or not you will have to pay for your sins in eternity. 
What I've found is not that people examine the claims of Christianity and find them to be wanting and then move on. It's rather they just simply dismiss them. They never examine them at all. They have no interest. And in so doing, what do they do? They condemn themselves. They become self-condemned in ignoring Christ. If the fire alarm is going off and you, because you are stubborn and stiff-necked, remain planted in your seat, whose fault is it if you burn? Ultimately, it's your own. Now, I have to tell you, I am not looking for people to simply implicitly believe everything that I say and accept it without any question whatsoever. Go ahead, ask me the questions. I, I would lo- I, I love, I love to hear those questions. They are far easier to deal with than how's your health or what's going on in your life or hey, how about that sportsy sports team? I don't know. The only game I follow is soccer and probably after today's results with England, I'm probably not going to. Uh, and there, there's terrible temptation. I, I want to find the score, but I'm not going to. Not until Monday. <laughs> But in any event, I would much rather discuss the things of the gospel because they are the things of eternity. They are the things that really matter. These are the things that people most need to hear. We don't need to hear about sports, leisure, even politics, even though it takes up so much of our time. What we really need to hear about is eternity. What we really need to hear about is wisdom. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to even be skeptical about these things. To come, as the Queen of Sheba said, I came doubting, but now I know these things are true. You have proven them to me. You remember there was was a doubting disciple. There was obviously one disciple who was unregenerate. But even amongst the regenerate disciples, there was Thomas. Poor old Thomas. You know, uh, as as one man put it, uh, to, to spend the rest of, you know, human history with the epithet doubting in front of your name. You know, and somebody pointed out, it's not fair, really. We don't call him betraying Peter, do we? You know, but he is nonetheless doubting Thomas. Why? Because he refused to believe at first that Jesus had come back from the grave. You remember he said, unless I put my hand in his side and my fingers in the nail prints, I'm not going to believe. And then Jesus appears and he invites him, Thomas! Come on up, put your hand in my side. Put your fingers in my nail prints. Do not be doubting, but believe. What was his response at that point in time? It was my Lord and my God. And he fell to his knees before the Lord. He had doubted, but he had doubts no longer. The evidence had been presented to him by his Savior. But you know, what does Jesus say at that point to Thomas? He said, he didn't say to him, well, Thomas, well done. You demanded the highest level of possible proof. And now you you see, and that's wonderful. No, actually, Jesus said something about you and the generations that would come to pass, uh, pass afterwards. This is John and chapter 20 and verse 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. How will they believe? Well, the answer is through the godly wisdom contained in this book. Jesus, uh, or rather John, goes on to say this. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It has been my experience that very few of the people who don't believe the gospel have ever actually read their way through the gospels. 
I used to maintain when I was an unbeliever that, uh, oh, yes, I've read the Bible. Had I really? Nah. I'd read bits and pieces here and there of the Bible, and I'd read them all without wisdom and understanding and seldom and never once asking anybody who had any biblical wisdom, what do these things mean? I would encourage you, if you are struggling, if you have doubts, if you are actually a skeptic, if you don't believe these things, read the Bible. Read the gospel according to John. Read the gospel according to Matthew. Read the Acts of the Apostles. And then make a decision. Talk to people who know the word. Ask me questions. I have no problem. Ask the elders questions about the word of God. Seek to get the answers that you need. Be like this woman who is willing to travel so far just to find out if these things are true. I guarantee you, you will not be disappointed. Let's go before our Lord now. God, our Father, we pray, O Lord, that you would make us seekers after wisdom, true wisdom. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see the truth. That is what we want most of all. We want the truth. No more self-delusions. No more of the things that cause death and destruction in the world. Help us also, O Lord, to, to find mentors, people who will help us to grow in grace and knowledge. And if we have never struggled with these questions, may this be the beginning. May it be that this day you begin to prick our consciences and wake us up. You make us struggle with your word. May it be we're no longer so tied up in the things that we fritter our lives away on and then they're gone. Lord, I understand now, as I didn't when I was young, how short life really is, how quickly it passes by. We turn around, our children are grown, and suddenly we have a, a wealth of health conditions we never thought of. The people who we knew and loved are now gone. And oh Lord, in those moments, we recognize that much of the stuff that we spent so much of our time and energy in is of no value. Oh Lord, may it be that the young people who are hearing me today, that they learn that before it's too late. Oh Lord, may they have that wisdom early on 